Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. On page 492 in the paperback Bibles. Have you ever, well, first of all, I've got to make an, an announcement. Um, Brian just mentioned the Thanksgiving service coming up uh, next Sunday, so we're looking forward to that. This is an annual event for us here at New Life. We get to hear testimonies of Thanksgiving from um, members of our church, so looking forward to that. So make a note to join us next Sunday. This is actually going to be the last sermon that we'll have in Mark for a little while because after the Thanksgiving service, that is on November 27 for the Advent season, I'm going to be starting um, <clears throat> a new sermon series, just a, a brief, to, brief detour from Mark, a sermon series called Being Human. Um, what we celebrate in the uh, Advent season, Christmas season, is the incarnation, that is the second person of the Trinity, becoming human. And so we're going to take some time to think about what does that mean for us as humans? What, what is a good, solid theology of being a human being? That is uh, an issue that has uh, raised a lot of questions in people's minds here in our culture recently. And so <clears throat> we're going to devote several weeks to that topic. We'll return to the series on Mark uh, in January. Um, I'm hearing just a little bit of ringing here. I don't know if you're hearing that at all. I think Josh is on it, but um, <clears throat> thank you, Josh. Okay, Mark chapter 7. <laughs> Have you ever felt like an outsider? Do you know what it feels like to be an outsider? It can happen in a variety of different situations. Maybe you get a new job, you enter the workplace, and there are people with already established relationships and work habits, and you're on the outside. Maybe you move into a new neighborhood. Um, you don't know your neighbors. You're seeking to get adjusted. You're on the outside. Maybe you um, <clears throat> have come here from another country, and you're trying to get adjusted to life in a new nation. You feel like an outsider. Maybe you there's a group of friends, maybe a clique that you're kind of trying to break into, and not being very well received. You feel like an outsider. They love each other. They know each other. They have a rapport. You can't break into it. You feel like an outsider. Maybe <clears throat> you've come to a new church. <laughs> uh, there's an experience where we often feel like an outsider, right? You come to a new church, and you're trying to break into a community, and there's this kind of lonely feeling that accompanies this outsiderness. Um, unpleasant feeling, isn't it? You feel a little bit like a, like a stranger, you feel like you don't belong, and sometimes you wonder if you'll ever feel like you really belong. Well, Jesus in our passage here in Mark chapter 7 is going to do some things we're going to read about that demonstrate to us that Jesus has a very compassionate and deep heart for the outsider. He pursues the outsider. And from a Jewish perspective, knowing that Jesus was a Jewish man, the epitome of the outsider in Jesus' day would have been the Gentile. From a Jew's perspective, the Gentile was the outsider. And so that's what we're going to be considering here this morning, Jesus and the Gentiles. 
<clears throat> we're just working our way through the book of Mark here. This is what we do at, at New Life, mostly, aside from brief topical sermons like Being Human that we'll do during Advent, but mostly we just try to work our way through a book of the Bible. So we're just picking up in Mark here where we left off last week, Mark chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 24 to 37. And uh, <clears throat> there are these two incidents here that give to us um, a picture of Jesus in his heart for the outsider, in particular Jesus in his relation to the Gentiles. So from the, the typical Jewish perspective, the, the Gentile was unclean. I mean, really the simplest way to define a Gentile is just someone who's not a Jew. Non-Jews are Gentiles, but there was more uh, involved in that assessment in Jesus' day than maybe today. Gentiles were the uncircumcision. They were those who were outside of the covenant. They were prohibited from coming to the temple. They couldn't even marry a Jew. It wasn't lawful from a Jewish perspective. They were known as people of disobedience. They would have been the, the unbelievers, the, the pagans. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes them as strangers to the promises, having no hope, and without God in the world. That was the Jewish perspective of the Gentile, clearly falling into outsider category. <clears throat> this passage here this morning is just remarkable as we see Jesus' intent to cross this line, to move into outsider territory, not to judge, not to create a fight, not to get into an argument, but to show love, to offer care, to heal, to restore, to bless, and to redeem. That's Jesus' heart for the outsider. And so this passage is broken up into two sections. There's just two little stories here, one with a woman and one with a man, both Gentiles. And so that's what we're going to consider today. So if you're able to stand, please do so. We're just going to finish out chapter 7 here. Mark 7, starting in verse 24. Here's what the Word says. <clears throat> and from there, he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis. <clears throat> and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his 
ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes, open our ears. Let us behold wonderful things in your word today. Would you do that, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Jesus and the Gentiles. Well, my points here this morning are are pretty simple as we just kind of work our way through this text. First of all, we're going to look to see how Jesus blesses a Gentile woman. All right, so going back to verse 24. Uh, You remember that Jesus has had this occasion to dispute with the Pharisees over uncleanness and the tradition of the elders and how it is that a person can be acceptable before God. Jesus makes the point that really what is evil is not what comes outside into us, but what comes from the inside out of us. And that's a very startling thing to say to a Jewish person in that day. And So that conversation is concluded, and so now we're told that Jesus from there arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So let me kind of bring out the map here to kind of review where we have been geographically here so that you can get a picture of what is happening here. So uh, this is uh, called the region of Galilee, and so uh, this is where Jesus has been conducting pretty much all of his ministry so far in the book of Mark for these first seven chapters. Uh, The stories we've been reading about, you know, Jesus in the boat with his disciples and the storms, et cetera, and going back and forth across the sea is right here. He's been going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you'll see here Capernaum is kind of Jesus' home base. A lot of ministry has been conducted uh, out of this area. You'll see here this is Judea. It's cut off the map here, but if you went way down here, you'd get to Jerusalem, and uh, that's where Jesus eventually is heading, and that's the place where he's going to go and give his life uh, for our sins. But for the time being, Jesus here is here in Galilee. So um, it says here in the text that he is now heading up to Tyre and Sidon. So you notice it's way up here, Tyre and Sidon. And you'll see that this says Syria. Um, And uh, Lebanon is also in here as well. Another word for Lebanon is um, Phoenicia. So if you look at verse 26, you see that the description of this woman is that she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. All that just means is that she comes from this area up here. This Syro is kind of another word or adjectival kind of term for Syria. Phoenicia, so she's from up here, but the text is very clear. She's a Gentile. This is all Gentile territory up here. So there's Jews all around here, but this is Gentile territory. Gentiles unclean. Gentiles are outsiders. Jews do not fraternize with Gentiles. And so this is a pretty startling thing here that Jesus is going up into this territory. Well, a little later, we'll get to the man in a moment in the second part of this story, but notice in verse 31 that uh, it says that uh, Jesus went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee um, and um, went, so uh, Sidon kind of through the Sea of Galilee and then down to the Decapolis, it says. 
Decapolis also is a very heavily Gentile region. Okay? So we have this Jewish area surrounded by two Gentile areas, and Jesus here is making it a point to go to both of these places. And so in the first story here, he's meeting this, this woman. And um, this woman, again, from the Jewish perspective, is just about as outsider as you can get, because not only is she a Gentile, but she's a woman. And uh, in that particular culture, women were not highly regarded, but not only is she a woman, but she has a, a daughter, not a son, she has a daughter, and the daughter has an unclean spirit. So there is just nothing at all in this woman that would commend herself to a Jewish rabbi, Gentile, woman, daughter, demon-possessed daughter. And yet she comes here to Jesus. Now, why it is that Jesus is going to these particular areas, Mark does not tell us. Uh, It might have been because he just wanted to find some rest. It might have been because he was trying to flee the Jewish religious authorities. Um, we're not sure. We see here that he went into a house in verse 24, and he didn't want anyone to know. So that suggests that maybe this is more of a restful time, but the passage says he could not be hidden. When Jesus comes to town, everybody knows, because this is Jesus, and word is getting out about all that he has done, all that he has taught, all the miracles that he has performed. So even up in this Gentile region, they know that Jesus is there. This woman finds out and she pursues Jesus. And so here's what happens. Verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And so out of deference and respect, she falls down. And of course, what's implied here is that she wants Jesus to heal her daughter. Daughter's got a demon. And This is a mother, like any good mother, fiercely protective of her daughter, her children. And so, in defense of her daughter, she seeks out Jesus, begs that he would cast the demon out of her daughter. I guess it does say that there at the end of verse 26. Now, we move here into verse 27, and this is where things get a little little strange. This very kind of odd dialogue takes place between Jesus and, and this woman. And so here's what Jesus says to her, verse 27. It's a woman, you know, please, cast the demon out of my daughter. And Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Do you hear the implication here? <clears throat> what Jesus is basically saying is, is that it wouldn't be right for me to bless you right now because you're a dog. Now, I mean, that sounds pretty offensive, doesn't it? I mean, this sounds pretty, pretty cold, pretty, pretty harsh, uh, maybe even racist. Got a Jew here calling a, a Gentile a, a dog. Um, so what's going on? Is, is, is Jesus being rude? Is he being intentionally offensive here? Um, you know, we have to understand what was typically understood with regard to just a, a dog. So, you know, like a Dogs are regarded differently in our culture than that culture, right? Um, so uh, here's my opportunity to show off our new, our new puppy. That's, <clears throat> that's Gracie, our new puppy, enjoying her first snow yesterday. Um, I love how she's got a little snow on her nose right there. She's been digging in the snow. 
Um, now, you know, Gracie has a pretty good life. Uh, you know, she eats three meals a day. She's got little blankets in her crate. There are toys spread out all over the house. Um, you know, she's, she's treated really well. And most of us who have dogs as pets do the same, right? We, we care for our dogs. We love our dogs. We regard dogs as these cuddly house pets. But friends, that is not the way people in Jesus' day regarded dogs. So, I mean, even today, if you call someone a dog, it is an insult, I, I suppose. But it, it was worse then because a dog was an unclean animal. A, a dog was a scavenger. A dog was just roaming the streets at will. They were wild. They were dangerous. They were held in contempt. They were not regarded as man's best friend. That wasn't the view of dogs in that day. So they didn't have this view of of the dog. And so, you know, there is this kind of, yeah, this, this tension kind of loaded into what Jesus is saying here. So is he intending to offend this woman? And so that's, that's an interesting question. And um, I think there are different ways to answer it. I, w- one kind of clarifying thing that we should consider here is that the word for dog that is being used here is what's called a diminutive form. It just means a smaller form. It is a different word than the word that would be more commonly used to describe a, a, a scavenger or a kind of a wild street dog. That, that's not the word that Jesus is using here. A diminutive form, it's a, a smaller form. Some say it might mean something like a, like a puppy. M- maybe, maybe. Um, but it, it kind of seems like if we go too far down that, that path that, that we might want to conclude that, that, well, there's no offense here and the woman would have totally understood that basically Jesus is just calling her a cute little puppy. <laughs> and yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't want to go that far. I don't think that's going on. I think maybe it's not as offensive on the surface as we might think when we first read it, but yeah, I mean, there really is a strong statement here about this woman as a Gentile. And I think we can understand better Jesus' point if we just kind of hone into verse 27 a little bit more. Let's look at verse 27 where the statement is made. It says, He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So I think that's that's important to notice. Let the children be fed first. The implication is that the dogs will be fed. It's just the children are fed first. So, I mean, any good parent, right? You make a nice meal for the family. You don't put your plate down on the floor and let the dog eat it, and then whatever's left over you give to your kids. Right? We don't do it that way. We feed our kids first. And living in America, where there is an abundance and surplus, very often there's food left over, and that food will then go to the dogs. But kind of the implication here, though, is that the dog is part of the household, and the dog is going to get some food. The dog will get the crumbs. The dog will get the leftovers. And so I think what Jesus is getting at here is he's talking about the priority of his mission. And that is that the gospel should first go to the Jews. And we see that various places in the scriptures. Jesus says salvation comes from the Jews. Uh, Paul in Romans 1, of course, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So the gospel is going to get to the Gentile, but it's got to go to the Jews first. And that's 
I think, the main point that Jesus is making here. There's food for the dogs. There's food for the Gentiles. But the Jews get a first crack at it, so to speak. Now, here's, I think, the amazing thing, is most people hearing something like what Jesus just said would probably be highly offended. I cannot believe you just called me a dog. Particularly in our culture, it's very hypersensitive about you know, being triggered and hearing this kind of language. But do you notice this woman is not offended at all? She is not offended. Look at verse 28. She just plays right along with it. She just says, yeah, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay. It's like she's saying, I, I, I agree with you. It's like she's saying, yeah, I am a dog, but I still want what you have to give me. I still want, even if it's just crumbs, even if it's just crumbs from you, Jesus, I'll take it because that's what I need. And Jesus is so impressed that she says, he says in verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And then she goes home and she finds indeed that Jesus by his power has healed her daughter and the demon has left her. Uh, It's just an amazing thing here. What Jesus is doing basically here is telling a parable. And we've seen parables already in Mark and and parables are given to us more in in the book of Matthew. But what you might remember about parables is that when Jesus tells parables, almost nobody gets them, right? And Jesus has always got to pull people, even his disciples, his disciples come to him later and say, what in the world are you talking about? What do you mean by that? And then Jesus has to take time and explain the parable. And here is Jesus giving a parable to a Gentile outsider woman, and she gets it immediately. She doesn't need any additional explanation. It's just Jesus says, yep, that's it. You got it. Go your way, demon has left your daughter. And in Matthew, where he gives his account of this situation, he adds that Jesus says this, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. So the woman just just gets it. It's just a remarkable, astounding thing that what we've been seeing so far is the Pharisees dealing with Jesus, the Pharisees who are these religious authorities and know so much about the Scriptures And they don't get it. And then here you have this woman who comes. She's had no experience with the Torah. She's probably never been to the temple. She certainly knows nothing about the tradition of the elders. But she knows one thing. I need Jesus. That's what she knows. And Jesus says, that's it. You got it. That's really the essence of the whole thing. You need Jesus. So do you know that? I mean, you might be a religious person and you're doing all sorts of things right and you're a really good, upstanding person, but do you know that you need Jesus? Do you know that? Or is your obedience to all these outward forms just an excuse not to go to Jesus? See, I think this story gives us a great model for how to be a Christian because there are some people who think they're too good to be a Christian. You know, so if you tell them, if you say to some person, you know what, you're a sinful person, you're under the condemnation of God, and deserving of an eternity in hell because of your sins. You say that to people today, and they they are offended. And so here's Jesus saying something that would have been highly offensive, calling this woman a dog, and basically her response is, yeah, yeah, you're right, I am a dog. (laughs) 
And, and that's really the proper response. When somebody says you're a sinner and you're under the condemnation of God, the proper response to that is you're right. I, I am a sinner. I don't deserve the favor and love of God. But some people, they think they're too good. They don't think they need a Savior. And so they won't accept that, and they're offended if you tell them you're, you're a sinner. But the other part of this, though, is that some people think they're too bad to be a Christian. And so they think, my, my sin is too great. I've done too many bad things. I've, I've been away from the church for so long. I, I've, I've never been to church at all. I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about religion. I've been in prison. I've committed an abortion. I've I struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm too bad. I can't. I, there's no way that God would accept me. Well, here's this woman. Do you notice her determination? It's like at the one hand, she knows, yeah, she's a dog. And on the other hand, she says, Jesus, I want you. It's like she's humbled by her realization of who she is, but it does not slow her down in her pursuit of Jesus. No, you're not too bad to be received into God's kingdom through Jesus. You are too good. If you think you're too good, there's no room for you. But if you think you're too bad, you're a great candidate <laughs> to be a Christian. In fact, that's all we really bring to Jesus is our sin, to be cleansed, wiped away, and removed by the blood of the cross. So, great model here, I think, um, for what it is to approach God. Um, this woman, humbled, but at the same time, assertive in her approach toward Jesus. So, that's Jesus blessing a Gentile woman. But secondly, now Jesus blesses a Gentile man. And this is uh, kind of an unusual miracle as, as well, not really in the dialogue, but in what actually happens. This actual miracle is not included in any of the other Gospels, only here in the book of Mark. And um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, it, it's true that the man is not described as a Gentile like the woman is, but again, he's in the Decapolis, heavily Gentile region, um, highly likely that this is a Gentile. So here's what happens in verse 32. <clears throat> they, um, they, we don't know who that is, but some people bring to him, Jesus, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. So uh, it doesn't say that he was actually you know, fully mute or unable to speak. The NIV says that he could hardly talk. So he's deaf, and as often is the case with deaf people, uh, their deafness affects the way they, they speak, and um, that's the case with this man. He can hardly talk. He's got a speech impediment. And what they want is for Jesus to lay hands on him so that he will be healed. And so his ears will be opened and his tongue will be loosened. And so the first thing that Jesus does in verse 33, we're told, is he takes the man aside from the crowd privately. Now, why would he do that? I mean, why would he take him aside? I mean, after all, apparently they're in the midst of a crowd here. I mean, Jesus could perform this miracle before the crowd and impress everybody. And wow, everybody would know the power of, of Jesus. He could really make a show of it. But no, he, he takes the man aside, takes him into a private place. Now, why is he doing that? Well, maybe this is a little bit of speculation, but I imagine it might be because of what Jesus knew about this man's life. That here's a man with a speech impediment, He's probably been made fun of his whole life. He's probably been bullied 
He's been the spectacle all of his life. The one who people are always talking about, making fun of, making light of. And Jesus, in his gracious sensitivity, says, I'm not going to make a spectacle of you now. This is going to be in private. This is just going to be you and me. And so he pulls him aside out of the crowd. And then he does some strange things, right? Starting in verse 33, he walks to the man, puts his fingers in his ears, spits, and touches his tongue. Now, how would you respond in the day of COVID to someone who spit and told you to open your mouth so that they could put their finger on your tongue? You, know? you would probably not like that. You'd probably resist that. Um, but that's what Jesus does. It just says, just says that, um, that he, he spits. Um, we're not sure if he spit into his hands and used that spit on the tongue. I'm not, not sure, but he spit. Saliva was kind of known to be a cleansing agent in that time, so maybe they had something to do with it. But he reaches in and, and he touches his tongue. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Well, <clears throat> it might be... Uh, it might be um, easy to think that this was some kind of thing that Jesus needed to do for himself, like, like some kind of a magical incantation, you know, an abracadabra kind of thing that he needed to go through these procedures in order to invoke the power of, of God. But I don't think that's why he's doing these things. Jesus isn't doing this because he needs to. Jesus is doing these things because the man needs it. Jesus is communicating to the man what he's about to do. He puts his fingers in his ears as if to say, I'm going to fix your hearing. And he puts his finger on his tongue as if to say, I'm going to fix your speech. And then it says, he, he looks to heaven, it says, and, and he, he sighs in verse uh, <clears throat> 34. Why is he he sighing? Yeah, that's another thing that we're not really told. Perhaps Jesus is just feeling the heaviness and the weight of the effects of sin in the world. And here's this man who has been dealing with this burden for all of his life, and, and Jesus, he decides, but he looks to heaven as if to communicate to the man that you're about to see God do a miracle. So it's kind of like, like sign language. I, I think that's part of what's going on. Jesus just graciously communicating to this man in the best way he knows how about what he's going to do. But there's also something here, I think, about the importance of of touch, about physical contact. That's important to Jesus. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but <clears throat> if you look through the Gospels, you'll notice many, many times it says that Jesus reached out and touched people. And sometimes, apparently, for, for no real apparent reason, I mean, just some examples here, Matthew 8, this is uh, Peter's mother-in-law, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and began to serve him. Did he have to touch her hand in order to get the fever to go away? I don't think so. But he touched her. <clears throat> Matthew 9, this is two blind men. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done for you. Transfiguration, Matthew 17, the disciples uh, <clears throat> kind of frightened. Jesus came and he touches them and says, rise and have no fear. There's something about human touch that is really important. You know, we live in a day and age where it's, you know, a little bit creepy when you think about people wanting to touch you, and, you know, you, you do have to be careful, right? But, but there's something about physical touch that, that is essential. And during the days of COVID, when we were all locked down, that was something that many people 
observed that one of the problems with this is that we're staying so far from each other, we're not benefiting from touch anymore. And so Psychology Today came out with this article during COVID. This is, well, I guess a little bit after August 2021, The Vital Importance of Human Touch. And in the article it says that physical touch can calm the nervous center, slow the heartbeat, and lower the blood pressure. And when the touch is from a loved one, it's even more so the case. And I know uh, for us, for my wife in particular, one of the most heartbreaking aspects of COVID is that my wife's mother was in a nursing home during COVID, and she was dying, and she spent her last days unable to be touched by anybody. And so, you know, we would go visit her, and my wife would go visit her, and they would keep us 15 feet apart. And those are the conditions under which she died. She couldn't be touched. And so we here have Jesus in in his grace and in his sensitivity, just, just knowing he doesn't have to do these things. But he does them in his mercy toward people. He, he touches them. And so verse 31 then, he, he says, Epfatha, Aramaic, for, for be opened. And sure enough, verse 35, ears are open, tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Wow, just think of that. For the first time hearing the birds singing. And for the first time hearing children laughing. For the first time hearing music. You know, he's, he's experiencing all these things for the first time, and his tongue is loosened. He can, he can talk. He can tell his wife that he loves her. He can open his mouth and praise his Savior. His tongue has been loosened. And the crowds see this in verse 37, and they note. They say <clears throat> that uh, it says that they were astonished beyond measure. And then they say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I mean, it's amazing enough that Jesus has just performed these, these miracles, that, that he's done these things. But I think what the crowd is saying here is it's not just that he's performed this miracle, is that he performed the miracle well. <laughs> he, he did it in the, in the best, most appropriate way possible. He, he, he respected this deaf man, this outsider, you know, he didn't make a spectacle of him. He, he was gracious to him. He did this quietly. He didn't turn it into a show. And that's why Jesus says in verse 36, he charges, don't, don't tell anybody about this. He doesn't want the reputation of just being this kind of wonder worker. You know, Jesus knows there's something more important that he is doing. He is coming to go give his life in Jerusalem on the cross to forgive sins and be resurrected from the dead. That's primarily why he's coming. And so he doesn't want a bunch of word getting out so that people are constantly coming to him simply for miracles. And so he says, don't tell anybody about this. He's content for this to be quiet and behind the scenes. He does it respectfully. He does it sensitively. He does it with appropriate touch. And the people notice this, and they say, wow, he, he does everything well. I mean, there, there is, I think, a, perhaps a challenge for us as believers. I mean, that really ought to be our attitude as well, right, toward everything we do. Do it well. And whether you're at work, whether you're on the soccer field, apologizing to your spouse, conducting a worship service, do it well. 
Do the best you can. Do it well. We, Christians, we don't just do things to get them done and push them out of the way. We do things well. doesn't mean we do things perfectly. We fall. There's limits to what we can do. But our Savior did everything well. And that was observed by the, <coughs> by the crowds. One last thing. <coughs> if it's true that Jesus blesses a Gentile woman and that he also blesses a Gentile man, um, the good news is that he continues to bless Gentile men and women and children. Today. Today. Because, friends, you know, this may be stating the obvious, but maybe it's gotten past you. Do, do you know who are the Gentiles today? It's everybody in this room. We're Gentiles. Now, I don't know all of you. Maybe some of you have Jewish heritage. I, I don't know. My, my guess would probably be that we're almost everybody here are, are Gentiles. We're the non Jews. We're the strangers to God's promises. We're the ones who had no hope. We're the ones without God in the world. We're the outsiders. And the gospel reached us. God in his heart came to outsiders like you and me, proclaimed the message so that you and I, by the power of his spirit, could believe and be saved. God's desire from the beginning has always been not just for the Jews, not just for religious people, not just for the insiders, but for the whole world. And our call to worship kind of touched on this. And most commentators say that Mark 7 is basically a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, which Pastor Brian read at the start of our service. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so here in Mark 7, what Mark, I think, is communicating is that the promise of Isaiah 35 is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Salvation has arrived for the whole world, for insiders and outsiders both. And then Paul says it to us this way, <clears throat> Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So friends, this is to all of us here in this room. Remember, you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in fulfillment of Isaiah 35, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He has made us insiders. He has washed us clean. He has forgiven our guilt. He has adopted us into the family. And you have the assurance today that you belong. You're part of God's family. What a great encouragement this should be to us as, as believers, as people who do struggle to find places where we belong in the various places in life where we work and, and play and do our business. It's very easy to feel disenfranchised, marginalized, alienated, but among the family of God, Christian, you belong. And if the gospel has reached you and me, here's the good news, friends, it can reach many others as well. It can reach the Muslim in Iran. It can reach the hardcore atheist in North Korea. It can reach the hardened post-Christian secularist in Paris and London and New York City. And it can reach... Even those around us here in Muncie, 
Yorktown, the immigrant, those who have just got out of prison, those who've never been to church. The gospel is for them. Jesus has a heart for the outsider. So Lord God, give us a heart for the outsider too. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your heart shown to us on the pages of Scripture. Um, Thank you, Lord, for drawing us near, that we were once far, but now you've brought us near into your family by the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you for that, and give us, Lord, please, a heart for the outsider among us, that the church would be filled with those who were once outside but now are inside by the good news of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.